0: This morning's scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. In your pew Bibles there in front of you, that's on page 1016. 1 1 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for Consent, except with consent for a time, that you might give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self control.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. We welcome back the Torreses. We're so thankful for their work in Brazil over the last few weeks, and to hear of the three baptisms that have taken place in the last few weeks. And and uh, in, in their words, that's a pivotal point in the work there, uh, to have those additions. And so uh, it may literally be bigger than what meets our eyes, and we're thankful for that. We know also that our Chandra Reed and Shawna Brown and John Deadman and Wendy Graham have been on a mission trip in Honduras, and uh, I kind of lost count, but there's around 30 baptisms that took place and four or five restorations, and we'll try to give you the exact update on that, but that's exciting, and that was a trip that Phil led. And then we're real excited about also what's taking place this week. Beginning in the morning is our Vacation Bible School. Now note, there's a correction than what's on the screen there. I should have changed that. It's three-year-old through sixth grade will be here in the morning, and it'll begin at nine and go through noon, three-year-old through sixth grade, and we look forward to the time. Our theme will be the King and I, and as you pass through the foyer, you saw already uh, that there's been a lot of work and a lot of plans, a lot of excitement is building, and also throughout the other parts of our building also, uh, rooms have been decorated, and because of that, all of the adult classes will meet in the auditorium following this hour of worship except Uh, the ladies' class will continue in their normal location and in their summer schedule. Also, you can't help but smile when you say, homemade ice cream supper. And so we look forward to that tonight. All of you do what you always do, and that is you just bring in tons of homemade ice cream. So go home this afternoon, make memories, make us all smile. And if you can't make homemade ice cream and you wanna bring homemade cookies or pick up some ice cream, feel free to do that also. Uh, But when we think about supper, I know a lot of people say, I don't like buffet bars. Well, you're gonna like this buffet. Uh, It's a wonderful selection of homemade ice cream, and we look forward to immediately after service tonight, joining in in that. Also do keep in mind that our 12questions.net campaign is well underway. Uh, right now there's a lot of uh, involvement that is being sought and we'll talk about that more even in Bible class at the very beginning just announcement wise at the beginning of Bible class next hour and then of course next week be waiting for even more information uh, to be given to you but everybody be praying about that and try your best to get your friends begin with yourself and then get your friends and co-workers etc this week to go to that website, and if you were going to ask God one question, what would it be? Be sure and submit that. If you're a guest today, we want you to understand that you might at first kind of raise an eyebrow and say, now, why are we studying this topic in this particular way? Granted, it could seem a little bit odd to study this topic in this way this morning, but the reason we're doing that is because we're studying through 1 Corinthians, And in 1 Corinthians, Paul was addressing a lot of problems and we're realizing that in order to become a part of the Lord's kingdom, it doesn't mean that all of our problems go away. But it does mean that God gives us solutions to all of our problems. Let me give you an idea and and, and it's just secular history here so you can take it and use it or throw it away, whatever you want, this is not uh, from the Word of God but let me take just a moment and give you an idea of some of the challenges they were dealing with in in the first century in in a Roman-influenced environment where where the the Roman culture was not uh, built up, the roots was not in, in Judaism or Christianity and so there would be an influence paganism even in their relationships although they had some degree of a practice of marriage it just simply wasn't honored in the same way that we would today for example contubarium was a relationship that was not recognized officially by the government as a marriage but because so many slaves were a part of the, the, the society in first century. Some say as much as perhaps 40%, some say as many as 60% of people in Rome, in the Roman Empire were slaves. They weren't allowed to officially marry, but yet they would have what, what that word means is tent companionship. It was the idea that an owner would look and say, you two slaves, you, you want to commit your life to each other? We'll allow you to live together. And, and, and that was in a sense the best that they could do officially under Roman government to, to participate in marriage. A second relationship that was somewhat similar to marriage uh, was usus, And usus was what we today would end up call, calling probably common law marriage. It was the idea that if you wanted to live together for a year And you wanted to see if that was going to work out for you. And you identified yourself as committed to each other. And and after a year, you could simply be recognized as married. Here in America, you know there's about 11, 12, 13 states that they have similar guidelines except usually their time period is around seven years. You have to present yourself as a husband and wife. During that seven years, you have to live together. It might be that you file taxes together as married. It may be that your, your checking account says Mr. and Mrs. but there has to be an obvious intent that you are married, etc. I'm not recommending this. I'm just showing you how some things are common, even today in some of our states have common law marriages. Our so then, there is a third relationship, coemptio. Coemptio was a relationship that, with a few witnesses, uh, the, the groom could, in a sense, buy the wife. This reflects the idea of women still being considered property. Uh, a much nicer appeal is instead of calling it a purchase, to call it dowry. And so therefore, a woman, if, if the, the young man wanted to take this wife, he would work out an agreement price, a dowry, with the husband, and if that, with the father of this, and, and therefore, he could become her husband. She could be his wife. One that is very similar, and, and see if you recognize anything in our day and time, to this one that is confariatio. Confariatio. The F-A-R in there was, in that word, is a type of barley Grain that they literally would take. And, and I'm really not for sure if it was a type of sacrifice that was made to their pagan god that they would involve in this. But see if this sounds anything familiar. This was the highest class, if you will, the highest level of a commitment of marriage. And not everybody could participate in it. In other words, a slave was not allowed to participate in this. But kafariao was the idea that, that a, a man, a father could bring into a ceremony that had an officiant over it. Do we need to pause here? Have you ever thought about the fact that we have nowhere in the New Testament what a Christian ceremony ought to look like? And so therefore you say, well, what should a wedding ceremony look like? We don't see that anywhere in scriptures. What we ought to be more concerned about is the marriage itself. Now we get that reversed in America today. We spend hours upon hours planning the ceremony and thousands upon thousands of dollars on the ceremony and then very little time is given and expense is given to making sure that we have built a strong marriage. But see if this sounds familiar from a pagan background. It would be the idea that, a, that there would be an efficient and, and, and he would lead some kind of ceremony that would make this a real marriage. And, and in that ceremony, a man would bring in his daughter, and he would take her hand and place her hand into the groom's hand. And history says they would have flowers, occasionally music, but then one of the big things about this ceremony was that it had to end with what? A cake that was made out of the barley-type grain that was brought together. Listen, I'm not trying to unsettle you and say that we're doing it all wrong, but isn't it interesting that what we participate in today, for the most part, as it relates to the ceremony of itself, has much to do with a pagan ceremony that was rooted in Roman culture. Now, I hope that your marriage is not rooted in that, But I say all that to say the emphasis in the Scripture is the fact of the marriage. The emphasis in the Scripture is never placed on the ceremony. If we did go back and we put our roots back in Judaism, how many of your fathers could afford that? Remember, it was a seven-day feast. My experience, it's hard enough to take care of a two-hour feast, all right? (laughs) And uh, and so I'm kind of glad that we do go back to that other kind of tradition instead of the seven day. But again, nowhere in the Scripture does God place the emphasis on the ceremony. It's not to cheapen marriage. It's not to take away from it. But the emphasis is up on the marriage itself. Now, I began with those other things just to point out this: Paul and the people in the first century were facing a lot of challenges. Imagine going in and converting a servant and the servant telling you, well, I was married, but my my master, he traded my wife back several years ago and I haven't seen her since. Imagine all these challenges that come about where cohabitation is exalted and if you like her after a year, you stay with her and you're considered married. Just promoting cohabitation. There have been a lot of challenges. But you say, Dave, that's all secularly. Give me Bible. All right, let's go back to some things we've studied just in the last couple of weeks. Remember in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, do you think there were challenges? A brother in the church was bringing in his father's wife. There's a problem of sexual immorality there. In that very same chapter, in the fifth chapter in verse 10, instead of... God saying through Paul, I just want you to stay away from all people who are sexually immoral. He literally says, now think what's being described here of Corinth when he says this. If you were going to stay away from everybody that was sexually immoral, you'd have to leave the earth. In other words, in Corinth, sexual immorality was rampant, just as it is today in America. And in the sixth chapter in verse 11, when he says, and such were some of you, He's going back in part to the ninth verse when you say, okay, what were they? These individuals have now been washed and they've been sanctified and they've been justified. Previously, they were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, and sodomites. And so we know that that is what the culture was because those that were going to become Christians had to leave that in order to become a part of the Lord. We also know that when we go into the sixth chapter, verse 12 through 20, some of the most in-depth teaching in all of the Bible of why we should be pure, in other words, avoid sexual immorality, is in that setting. Why would Paul write that to the church at Corinth? Because the church at Corinth was suffering tremendously from a culture that was greatly influencing them, and the influence wasn't great. Let me give you an, an illustration here. If I say to you the phrase, Southern hospitality, I don't have to tell you what is meant. Like if someone says, you know, we've lived up north all our life and we moved down in, into Willoughby Station and it was the strangest thing. A neighbor brought a pie by. I don't know why they brought a pie. And you know what? You know what you say to them? Oh, that's Southern hospitality. Really? I've never seen that. Or, or you, you walk down the street and just a stranger, Smiles, looks you in the eye and says, hey, how you doing? And someone say, I've never been around that. I remember when I lived on Long Island, and I'm not putting down the North. I loved living on Long Island, so please don't think I'm criticized. But because the culture was so different, after being up there a while, I had to remind myself, I don't want to become that person that doesn't speak to strangers. Because it get, I, I grew so comfortable just seeing people and never acknowledging them. And I kinda had to have a talk with myself, like I don't wanna lose that. It was that idea of what? Well, in a sense, it was Southern hospitality, but hopefully it's deeper than that to say that you have interest in other people's interests and you truly care about them. All right, I'm saying that to say what? See that last bullet there? There was a phrase in that day and time that was called to Corinthianize. Just like when we say Southern hospitality, you know what that means? they knew what that phrase meant. You could use it around the world in the first century and people knew what it meant. It means that sexual immorality was rampant in the life of the individual that you would say is Corinthianizing. Or if you were gonna say about another town or another culture and say they were Corinthianizing, what does that mean? We're simply saying this. Paul, the first century Christians there in Corinth, they faced a huge challenge And that was they were living in a culture that was debased. They were living in a culture that was at home with sexual immorality. And Paul brings in Christianity that would be so strange. The idea of being married to only one person and committed to them and having no sexual relationships with anybody else for the rest of your life would have been kind of like eye-opening and saying you're not serious, right? And so what do you think the result might be? Well, let me ask you this. What's our human nature? Our human nature is to have knee-jerk reactions. I'm living this extreme, so if I'm learning something new, maybe I ought to run to this extreme. And so what do you think this extreme might have been? They apparently, I'm not suggesting everybody in the church at Corinth, But some of them apparently had run to the extreme to say, well, let's just all be celibate. And that brings us to our title today as as we look at, I'll tell you what, can you skip one more? There you go. Uh, Problem. Let's ask this. Is it better or is it best to be celibate? And that's what a portion of 1 Corinthians 7 is about. They wanted to know, okay, we're not exactly figuring out how to control ourselves in all the ways that you're teaching, so how about we just do this? How about we just say, let's not touch a woman. Now, if you would just go back a slide. Notice this in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Let's pause there for a moment. Did you notice the order of the words there? He didn't say concerning the things I'm writing to you. That's what we normally expect a writer in the New Testament to say. Let me tell you what I'm about to write. Notice he said, I want to write to you about what you have already written to me. First Corinthians first chapter and verse 10, we see that the house of Chloe, that there were some representatives from that house that came to Paul and they told him some things verbally. But they also apparently delivered a letter that in this letter it had questions that the church there at Corinth wanted Paul to address to them. And so apparently he sat down and he wrote the letter that you and I hold called 1 Corinthians. And he addresses things that they had asked. That's why he begins this chapter by saying concerning the things which you wrote to me. All right, what did they write? And what did he say? Here's his first statement. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, to touch a woman there is the idea of, in the King James would say, to know a woman. It was the idea of the sexual relationship, that relationship that belonged only within the boundaries of marriage if we're going to be a Christian. If we are going to follow God. Now, if you're going to be in a a pagan society, there'd be different definitions and different boundaries and different expectations. But he's saying, and they're asking from the standpoint of, of being children of God, being a Christian. And so now their idea is, think, these are young Christians. They're just trying to figure it out. Think how difficult it is, even today in America. Think how difficult it is when we talk about God's plan for marriage and there are many people in America today that they've never been close to a family that have honored that. Think about if your mom and dad has never been married and your grandparents either have never been married or they did not remain married. They've been divorced and remarried several times. Or, and think about if your friends you ran around with, all of their parents, none of them were ever married and devoted to each other. Think if you could honestly say I read about this in the Bible, but it's hard for me to grasp because I have never once seen this lived out. That's a challenge. I'm not saying it makes it right then to ignore it. I'm just saying that's a challenge. Will you imagine in this pagan culture where many of them could probably say, okay, Paul, I hear what you're teaching. I'm trying to grasp it, but I have never seen anything like what you're talking about. And so their idea, as I've already stated, their conclusion, at least some of them was, let's do this. Let's play it safe. Let's just say we won't participate in marriage. Let's just say that we won't have any sexual relationships. How's that? Remember the, the Shakers had that idea too. It doesn't work out very well, does it? It's gonna be hard to stay in business when you can't multiply. All right, now, when, when, you, when you think about, even today though, and it's been about for hundreds and thousands of years, Some denominations praise celibate servants higher than other servants. I am not suggesting to you that that was the motive of what the Corinthian brethren were asking. I can't tell you it wasn't, but I I definitely can't tell you it was. I can't stand here today and say, I think what they were trying to get at is that if you could be celibate, you you could be a lot better than other Christians. But yet we have denominations today that do praise that. It's the idea that that you can be married and you can be faithful to God, but if you can be celibate, you can come in a place of leadership. You can climb high in our rankings because after all, a celibate servant is a more righteous, more holy, more pure servant. Now listen, brethren. The text we're gonna study today, Paul definitely addresses that principle. And the principle lies in this fact. Well, first let me just go back and hit this real quick with you. We don't have time to develop this. But think with me from the very beginning. Genesis 1, when God created Adam and Eve, what did he create? He created them as husband and wife. And then you remember in Genesis 2, when he was about to give the pattern of marriage and he was about to create Eve, remember what he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. So from the very beginning, what we see is a praise of marriage, not a demeaning of it. Well, if you can't remain celibate, You can lower yourself We don't see that Alright so we we see a miraculous start In Genesis 1 of creation That's why science can't prove creation It it wasn't an evolution of anything It was was miraculous God spoke all this into being Alright Do you think there's any significance to this? I can't tell you there is Can't tell you there isn't But do you remember Jesus' first miracle that's recorded? And where was he? It's tied right back at a wedding feast. And he changed water to wine. Scientifically, you can't explain water becoming wine. But what do we see in that? We don't see Jesus coming to this earth and saying, I want to live a holy life, so I'm going to avoid every connection with marriage. Instead, even though he didn't marry, the very first miracle he performs was at a wedding feast. And then, one of the highest compliments that has ever been paid to marriage is in Ephesians the fifth chapter when the relationship between the husband and the wife is interlocked tightly with the relationship of Christ and the church. So the idea to say at any point in time literally from the beginning of time to the last word that is written in the Holy Writ, you will never see a time Where the idea is, marriage is second-rate living. But let's go back to what Paul said. Paul did say on this next slide, and this just this is again verse one: "It is good for a man not to touch a woman." See what Paul's saying? He's saying celibacy. Sure, it's good. Notice he didn't say it's better. He didn't say it's less than. He just made a statement it is good if you choose to live a celibate life it is good but he also knows how God created us and that for most individuals that will not be best for most individuals why let's read the very next verse 7th chapter verse 2 Nevertheless, in other words, that's the way that he says, flip the coin over. If you are going to talk about this, you must also consider this. Nevertheless, because, why? Why, Paul? Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul says, sure, celibacy is fine if... You can avoid sexual immorality. Now keep in mind, we don't ever want to divide the Bible and separate one verse from another that, that belong together. And remember, the sixth and the seventh chapter belong together. And so for back up in the sixth chapter, verse 12, all the way down, what has he been doing? He's been telling how important it is for us to keep our bodies pure. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. And so now he comes to this topic of them asking questions. Okay, you wanted to know about is it best just to remain single, to remain celibate? And he says, it's good, but you also need to know the challenge is going to be you are going to be tempted sexually. And he says, and we don't have a slide for this, but if you have your Bible open, look down in verses 6, 7, 8, 9. I'll just read that quickly. This is also what Paul says about it. He says, but I say this as concession, not as a command. So Paul says, I can address this idea of celibacy. It's never going to be commanded by God, which, by the way, you remember 1 Timothy, uh, the fourth chapter? Remember verse 1, 2, and 3? One of the doctrines of demons was when a religious group forbids individuals to marry as if that's something better. That's how God describes it. And so that's why Paul says, you're not gonna read in scriptures where anyone is commanded not to marry. Look in verse seven. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, It is good for them if they remain even as I am. See, Paul puts himself in that category. Uh, Now, later on in this chapter, we'll talk to the virgins. But here is the unmarried, those that are not married today, and then also the widows. And Paul says, it'd be better for them to stay as I am. But now, can everybody do that? Look at verse nine. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And we know that that passion is also what is listed in Colossians, the third chapter. In verse 5, we see that that, uh, it's listed along with fornication and uncleanliness and passion. It's that lustful, sinful desire. All right, so let's go back now. and, And we see here in the second verse, he's made it clear because of sexual immorality, you have a husband has his own wife, and a wife has her own husband. Now, you're also going to see this in the next verse, too. And I want you to notice this, because it would be easy if I were sitting in your shoes to say, why are we slowing down here? To be honest and pure with the text, when God says something in two verses over and over, we ought to slow down and say, why is he saying this over and over? The word O-W-N is said several times in two verses. In other words, God wants us to understand how important own. O-W-N is in marriage, but he also wants us to understand how important O-W-N. Own is as it relates to keeping ourselves pure and avoiding sexual immorality. And so you may look at this and say that's too basic, but because he dwells on it, we're going to dwell on it for just a moment. What does it mean to have your own? Ultimately, he's pointing to a monogamous relationship. A husband has his own wife. Not every other woman, one, his, own. The wife has her own husband. Not every other man, her own husband. Let me show you an example of this. Go back, if you will, Proverbs, the fifth chapter. Proverbs, the fifth chapter. In Hebrew poetry, sexuality is oftentimes used metaphorically as a well, a spring, or a garden. And the idea is that when one is pure, that the well is closed, the fountain is not flowing, the garden is not, not given to anyone else. And then if one becomes married... Now notice this, because this is important. This is a principle that we see from the beginning. You remember in Genesis 2 and 24, therefore shall man leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and they too, what, shall become one flesh. That oneness and the unity of marriage is the idea that they're going to give all of themselves to each other. Notice as we read this, the fifth chapter in verse 15, uh, we'll make very few comments appropriate to the audience. Listen in verse 15, drink water from your what? Own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad? See, that would be sharing it not with your own. Streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for the strangers with you. "'Let your fountain be blessed "'and rejoice with the wife of your youth.'" See that monogamous, that commitment for life. Even though you've gotten older and she's gotten older, you keep that one commitment, that relationship that you've had with your own. "'As a loving deer and a graceful doe, "'let her breast satisfy you at all times "'and always be enraptured with her love. "'Why should you, my son, "'be enraptured by an immoral woman.'" See, she's not your own. "'And be embraced in the arms of seductress.'" And we could, we could look at the same thing in Song of Solomon, the fourth chapter, and you can see her talking about her garden. But then when she gets married, she gives her garden to her husband on their honeymoon. And then the very next thing that's said is he calls her garden his garden. In Song of Solomon, he never did that until after they were married. The garden did not become his until after they were married. What is meant by all of this? Think about the setting here. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. He's made it very clear who who owns us? Keep ourselves pure. Avoid sexual immorality. Oh, I see what you mean, Paul. Let's just have nobody to get married. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't go to that extreme. Most people can't do that. But what you do need to do is you need to honor the design that God has given and in a sense, it's take ownership. But have you noticed that ownership brings responsibility? This slide here, the, the picture is not my kids, but when my kids were young, uh, I had, we bought chickens for our kids, and, and it wasn't so we could make a lot of money. It was only because we wanted them to learn responsibility. Some of you here will remember way back then when you actually bought eggs. From my kids now they never made enough money to even buy all the chicken feed it never came out to be a financially profitable deal but but they learned responsibility how many of you have said to your kids you want a puppy you know that you are going to have to feed your puppy you're going to have to take your puppy out you're going to you know we get the idea you own something the ownership comes with responsibility that's exactly why God, over and over, uses the word "own." It is exclusive. It's yours, but that comes with responsibility. So let's see the responsibility that it refers to. First Corinthians, the seventh chapter, and verse three: Let the husband render is what? Render means to make payment. The affection, affection is goodwill, it's kindness and it can also include conjugal rights. The affection due, the word due, you see it on all your bills, it's the idea that you owe this payment. He literally is saying in verse three, if you're gonna participate in marriage, you're gonna participate in ownership and if you're gonna participate in ownership you have payments that are due every day. The due affection Wives love affection. The average wife would say affection is the highest need that she has in her life. Holding hands isn't as important to most husbands, as it is wives. Arm around the shoulder isn't as important to most husbands as it is wives. A note for no reason, a conversation that goes nowhere and never lands is not as important to most husbands as it is wives. But what's interesting is wives will place all of that under the idea of affection. In other words, the guy just, I held her hand. I wrote her a note. And you know what the woman says? Oh, he loves me. Those were the things that you did to attract your wife. Those were the things you did to pursue her, to marry her. But here's the shame, is when the man stops pursuing her. The affection ought to continue. The pursuit ought to never stop. Because you never want to stop saying your mind. You're mine. I have responsibility. I took you as my wife. I owe this to you that I will never stop doing these things. And then let's read on and we'll see some things of the husband. Look, if you will, in um, the fourth verse. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the wife, likewise, does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What do we see here? We see the idea that the day we get married, we're making a trade. The day we're getting married, we're saying, up to this point, my body, 6th chapter, verse 12 and 13, verse 19 and 20 of the 6th chapter, before we got married, if we're Christians, we're saying, my body only belongs to God. That's it. My body belongs to God. It's verse 19, the Holy Temple dwells, uh, the Spirit dwells in me, I'm the Holy Temple. Verse 20, I've been bought with a price. Back up in verse 12, My body wasn't designed for fornication. My body was for the Lord. My body is for the Lord. Then we get married and God says, okay, if you're going to participate in my institution of marriage, my body belongs to the Lord. And the Lord says, now I want you to give your body to your spouse. And so in that, we see this beautiful transference where we say, okay, I'm making a trade, if you will. I'm giving you my body, you give me your body, and God says, that's my design. First Corinthians 7 and verse five, we gotta wrap this up. First Corinthians 7 and five, and so he uses business terms again in verse five, do not deprive. I love the translations that say do not defraud, because that's literally, it's a business term. It's saying you owe it, don't fail to give what you owe. Do not deprive one another. We know who the one another is. The whole setting's been husband to wife, wife to husband. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And by the way, all the newer manuscripts uh, that, that probably are a little more trustworthy, they leave out fasting. So it's the idea of giving yourself to prayer. And come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I want you to notice the word not in that verse. It's in the first line, do not deprive one another. And then it's in the last line, do not let Satan tempt you. How do you not deprive? You make yourselves available, fulfill the responsibility you have of giving yourself. Remember, the beginning is, oh, let's just all be he says, Not everybody can do that. Well, what do you do? You have your own husband, your own spouse. You give yourself. So it's literally just the opposite. You want to be holy? If you decide to marry instead of celibacy being praised, it's absolutely wrong. You'd be active in the monogamous relationship if you're going to be holy in the sight of God with your husband, with your wife, but with no one else. And then the last part is, don't let Satan tempt you. How? Well, there may be a period of time in your life for that period of time. And by the way, even in the Greek, the idea of the tense is a short period of time. You may say, we've got a lot in our life right now and we need to spend some time in prayer. He says, you put a beginning to that and you put an end to that and the tense would say, don't make it very long. And he says, and when that end is ended, You two come back together again so that you don't open yourself up for temptation because Satan will use it against you. What we've studied today, the world will never teach it. You won't see it on any television show. You won't see it on any sitcom. You won't pick it up in any world's book. You won't hear it in any locker room. You won't hear it around any place in your community. What we've studied today is God's way and I hope that all of us all of us are willing to practice God's way what did I learn number one celibacy is good number two marriage is good number three understanding ownership is vital to holiness and number four don't touch what isn't yours this morning, if we could help you move closer to God, we'd love the opportunity to do that. We're not perfect people, but we're surely trying to lay down our life in full submission to God. And if we can help you in that, we'd love to help you. Uh, if you're ready to be immersed in Christ, or you're ready to be restored, or if you just have questions or concerns, please let us know what we can do to help you. And if you want to, come as we stand and as we sing. much for being with us today i hope that you've enjoyed the service and being together and hope you'll stick around for bible class uh, following our closing prayer if you need help finding a bible class let us know we can help you uh, get where you need to be we'll sing one more song and then we'll be closed in prayer
0: peace perfect peace in
2: Heavenly Father, we're so thankful at this time for you giving us another opportunity to come on your day and worship you and learn more about you and hopefully grow closer to you as a church family here in Mount Julia. (coughs) Father, we thank you for all the blessings you give us and we thank you for our health and we uh, thank you for the time you allow us to spend with our loved ones. And at this time, we wanna again pray for Connie Porter as she's going through surgery right now. And we ask that you be with Martin, her son, and Stephanie her daughter-in-law and their kids. It's no doubt this is a troubling time for them. And we pray that you'll put uh, your healing hands upon her and bless those who are working on her at this time and be with that family as comfort them as only you can. Father, we ask you to be with the two young Christians that took on your faith this week, Father. And we pray that you'll be with Reese and Alexis and and bless them as only you can. And we pray that each of us as a church family will take note of them and realize that We have an opportunity to be a good example to them and we pray that we will do so with them as well as all the other youth of our congregation who need our support as we too learn so much from them father we thank you for the leadership of this congregation the elders and their families and the encouragement that they offer us and we thank you for allowing us to be such a mission-minded church family and we thank you for For them looking outside what would be the normal box, if you will, and that we always are looking for ways that we can reach out and we pray that we will continue to do that as as we move forward throughout the years. Father, we ask you to be with us as we uh, leave this worship service and go to our, our Bible classes and we pray that you will be with those who have prepared lessons for us this morning and be with those in attendance that we may listen with an attentive ear and hopefully learn more about your word for being here. Thank you for your Son who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.